In this episode, I am once again joined by Jack Haubner, prize-winning author of the memoirs Zen Confidential, Confessions of a Wayward Monk, and Single White Monk, Tales of Death, Failure, and Bad Sex. In this interview, Jack reveals the interaction between his creative process and his Zen journey, from his screenwriting days in Hollywood, to journaling as a Zen monk, to penning his award-winning spiritual memoirs. Jack also considers the role of self-disclosure and comedy in his writing, reflects on why Sasaki Roshi did not emphasize art in his spiritual training, and recounts personal stories of fellow Zen student and renowned singer-songwriter Leonard Cohen. Jack also discusses how even senior Zen monks can become complacent during intense retreat, advises on how to break through stagnancy in practice, and ponders what it means to make spiritually resonant art. So without further ado, Jack Haubner. Jack Haubner, welcome back to the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. It's good to be back. The last time we talked, we discussed your life in Zen. Uh, on this occasion, we're going to discuss the intersection of Zen and art. You were, as we discovered in our last conversation, a Zen monk uh, for a decade. But before, during and after that, you've also had an active career as a writer. The most well-known of your work to listeners at this podcast is likely to be your two Zen memoirs, Zen Confidential, Confessions of a Wayward Monk, and Single White Monk, Tales of Death, Failure, and Bad Sex, although not necessarily in that order." End quote. You've also worked extensively as a screenwriter, essayist, stand-up comedian, and your writing has been published in the New York Times, The Sun, Tricycle, Buddha Dharma, Lion's Roar, and in 2012 you won the Pushcart Prize. Can you take us through the arc of your journey as a writer and creative? I'm curious if you had artistic leanings as a child, was, was that encouraged? How did it all get started and how did that trajectory unfold for you? Um, yeah, I mean, I got started writing in high school. Uh, like, in fact, we talked a little bit about this the last time, I think towards the end. I, I had had this kind of this experience um, driving my car, I think on the 94 freeway past a outdoor theater. And I wanted to kind of capture it. And so I started writing what I called this book of questions. And I wrote hundreds of pages of this thing. And then it kind of, I, I sort of realized, okay, I'm not capturing what I want to capture. I think I'm going to try and write poetry. So then I tried to start writing poetry, short stories. Then I would just sit down and uh, write and write and write and write and write. There was this um, radio program called the um, the sounds of space. It was this really cool, kind of funky, psychedelicish, minimalistic music. And I would just put on my headphones and, and put that radio program on and just listen to that and write for hours and hours and hours. That was high school, mid to late high school. Then college, I didn't want to study literature because I thought that would kind of kill the creative process. So I, I, I studied philosophy instead because I figured that would give me something solid to write about. But through it all, I've always been writing. You said I had an extensive career in screenwriting. That I, I did a lot of screenwriting and I read a ton of screenplays when I was in Hollywood, but I never actually got anything made or even sold anything. So I was a failed screenwriter. I want to make that clear. You did go to LA, from what I understand, with the intention of 
pursuing your writing, perhaps in screenwriting. I don't know if poetry was still uh, um, an ambition of yours at that time. Can you talk about the decision to go to L.A. and um, how that unfolded? Yeah, I mean, it was really kind of sudden. Like I was I, you know, I make all my decisions in life, like at the drop of a hat like really important decisions that you're supposed to think through, get a lot of input with, sit with, and then finally make the decision. These are always the decisions I make just at, in the, at the last minute, all at once. It's the most important decisions of my life. So that decision to go to LA was, I was finishing up my philosophy degree. We were coming into like the final stretch of senior year of college. And, <clears throat> excuse me. And a, and two things happened. I saw the movie Pulp Fiction, which I thought was the most brilliant thing of all time. And a friend of mine had a brother in Los Angeles who was looking for a roommate. <clears throat> Sorry, um, looking for a roommate. So that was how I wound up in Los Angeles. I wanted to write movies and, and I had a place to live. So I, was, I went to college in Texas and I was out of there. And who were your influences at that time uh, in terms of writing? You know, probably, that's a good question. Um, I was big on the existentialists. So like Nietzsche and Kierkegaard and Camus and Sartre in terms of philosophy. And then in fiction, my school was a great books program and they really revered Dostoevsky and Tolstoy. And those are still two of my favorite writers, especially Tolstoy. Um, you know, and then I had read On the Road, which just absolutely blew my mind. So Kerouac and the Beat Poets, of course, what young Gen X wannabe writer was not influenced by those guys. So yeah, the, the usual suspects. Hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that time in, in LA, uh, trying to become a screenwriter, trying to break into that? Um, uh, from, a, from the point of view of you as an artist, there was this period of time when you were in LA before you became a monk. Um, uh, where I presume that was your 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 main the, the main thrust of your ambition, work wise, writing wise. Can you talk a bit about that process, any obstacles you faced, and and what you concluded from that period? Yeah, I mean, it was interesting. I, you know, Hollywood is an interesting place. I mean, I went from kind of a bubble. I went from a complete and total bubble, which was the University of Dallas, where I went to college. It was a Catholic. Uh, college, a lot of, you know, suburban kids like myself were there, we were protected, it was safe. Um, then I went to Los Angeles, and it, it was, and, and Hollywood, and, you know, it was very dog-eat-dog, -dog. and the, you know, I remember I was working as a like a P, they called them a runners back then. I don't know what they call them now. Basically, my job was to run around town morning, noon, and night for uh, these three film producers. Um, <laughs> and one of them was especially difficult, like a Scott Rudin level asshole, this guy, but, but even worse. I mean, he was just epically bad human being, right? He would have me running around morning, noon, and night. I mean, I remember one time I went on like a, like a two-day quest to find a certain kind of chapstick for him that he had to have, right? And I remember being on the set of one of his shows, which maybe this is poetic justice, but it wound up being the largest, the most expensive failure in the history of the studio, MGM studio, was 
was this producer's <laughs> brainchild. But I remember being on the set for that show and it was on Venice Beach and it was literally like they had created, they, they'd made this enormous ramp and like Tony Hawk was there in the background doing his, doing his, working his skateboarding magic on this ramp. And they were shooting this scene in front of it where these characters were talking. The show was called Fame LA and it was like a bunch of young kids trying to make it in LA. And I remember watching this scene being shot and thinking like, it was just like, like two weeks ago that a bunch of a bunch of producers were in the room and I was coming in and out of the room at the time, like, like working on this scene. And now it's here, it's a reality. It's being shot on Venice Beach. Everybody built a setup around it. Tony Hawk is doing like his shit in the background. And I'm thinking like, this is Hollywood. Like it's, it's this, you just make stuff up and people film it and turn it into art, turn it into entertainment. Um, it's like, there's a ton of money involved. There's a ton of power involved. There's a ton of prestige involved. Like there's a ton of fake relationships involved. There's a ton of fear involved. There's like so much ambition, so much creative energy. And then so much, there's so little that actually finally gets made and turned into a product. So there's so much like creative waste in Hollywood. So after I was a runner, I became a, a reader. <laughs> and a reader is basically what it sounds like. You read hundreds, thousands and thousands of screenplays, like writing samples, potential movies, novels, nonfiction plays, stuff that could get made into movies. And I remember, I mean, Every, I would read like two to three of screenplays a day, it's like six days a week for years. And all of them represented the, each screenplay was the absolute best that this writer had to offer. And 99% of these scripts were just, were just um, not filmable. And not because they weren't great, not because they weren't interesting, not because they didn't have good parts, but because you had to like just, the a screenplay gets at that time it would be like anywhere from five million to a hundred million dollars thrown at it, you know, and not every screenplay is going to get made. So, I mean, overall, it was a <laughs> long answer to your question. It was like it was really this like you know this intersection of like I my artistic ideals and the philosophical uh, ideas I wanted to put in my writing met up against like the hard facts, the hard reality of, of the competition in Hollywood. And yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, but. Yeah, it certainly does. I'm, I'm interested on reflection. You mentioned there your artistic ideals and the ideas you wanted to express. Uh, I'm curious what, what, you know, sometimes it's said that one has to, one has something to say with one's art. Sometimes that, mm -hmm sort of thing is said. So I'm curious what it was in reflection you wanted to say, or maybe at the time what you thought you wanted to say, or maybe more pointedly, if you had made a film, if you had written a film that had been made, what would have been your film from that period of time? You know, my, I was always somewhere like, it was like this collision between Berg, Ingmar Bergman and like the high school sex comedy. Like that was always what I was trying to do. So, um, and like looking back on it, it's interesting because 
every idea that I had or character that I worked on or story that I tried to tell, it was always some guy on some kind of a spiritual quest of some kind. Um, and I tried to write these stories as comically as possible as kind of, maybe kind of like Woody Allen when he was doing some of his better stuff, although not quite so um, sophisticated, maybe a little bit more raw. So it was always a guy on a spiritual quest. And then I, and, and then I just went on one myself after a few years. I recently recorded, a, in fact, I recently published a dialogue between Rupert Spira, who's an Advaita teacher, and Henry Shukman, who's a Zen teacher in the Sambo Zen uh, lineage. And the interesting thing about both of those uh, men is that Rupert was, as, was described as one of the finest ceramicists of his generation. So he, he was uh, for 30 years uh, working in ceramics to extremely high, high level. And his pieces are in museums and art collections around the world. And that was before he became a, a spiritual teacher, although he wouldn't, I don't think like that phrase, spiritual teacher, but just for want of a better word. And Henry Schuchman was an award-winning poet, published uh, multiple po poetry collections, wrote fiction, won, won prizes, and was sort of internationally acclaimed for that as well, before he became a Zen teacher. So mm -hmm. it's an interesting, it was an interesting discussion. And one of the points of difference between them that we explored was that Rupert found that his, if you want, spiritual quest, to put it in the words you used. Now, I don't think he'd phrase it like that, but I'll have to, I'll have to uh, say it somehow. His uh, spiritual quest actually liberated his art. He found that it resolved a conflict inside of him between the love of beauty and the love of truth. And that actually enabled him to give himself completely to his artistic process. Henry, on the other hand, found that as he deepened into his spiritual practice of Zen, that it actually relieved a turmoil or a tension in him. And he used the word uh, a deep peace. It sort of pacified the, the, the turmoil that was an essential driving component of his creative process. So he actually stopped writing seriously. Uh, for quite some time. And then later on, relatively recently published his memoir, uh, One Blade of Grass, which is his, um, his sort of life story in, uh, in Zen, etc. So I think that in interest that uh, pre presents an interesting, um, two interesting character characterizations of the intersection of, should we say, spirituality and art, for want of better terms. I'm curious, as you got into Zen, and went deeper into Zen, and your spiritual quest, how did that affect your artistic process, your creative process? Did it, did it resemble either of those two uh, examples or uh, is there some other experience that you had? Yeah, that's interesting. Thanks for that. Of course, it's the Advaita guy who says it liberated him and then it's the Zen guy who says, oh, I finally I could stop writing. It relieved me of the suffering. Um, yeah, I mean, I had, yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, we were talking a little bit about Hollywood before. I mean, Hollywood was a tough place and the world of arts and entertainments and writing, podcasting, all of these things, they're a tough business because by definition, they're competitive. 
people are are watching this video and they're not watching other videos, right? And and they're and they're not watching this video because they're watching Joe Rogan or whoever. I mean, it's very competitive. Um, if and it's hard when you're in Hollywood not to define yourself by how successful you are because you have no social life a lot of times, especially a young kid in your 20s in Hollywood. Um, you go out with your friends and everybody's in the business and everybody's meeting everybody else who's in the business and everybody's talking about the business. Your social life is work. Um, I got out of that. I went to the monastery and it was, it was, I don't know, it was like um, CPR on my creative heart. <laughs> like it, it, it also just a, a sick bed that my creative process could lie down on and just recover and rest from. So it was really wonderful to be able to take all that energy that I was putting into writing and just put it into something that didn't have, have an explicit purpose that, that, that I couldn't succeed or fail at. Um, that was, gentle and yet really difficult at the same time. I mean, this was my Zen practice when I first showed up there and it was inspiring. Um, my first six months as a monk, I didn't write anything. So, and that was the first time that I had, had not written since I started writing. So since probably 15 or 16, uh, that was the first time I had just stopped writing completely. And it went for six months. And then my mom got me, I might've said this in our last, our last talk, I can't remember, but my mom got me this really cool journal and I wanted to like with blank pages and I wanted to kind of honor, you know, it's like so inspiring for a writer when you have a really good pen or a really nice journal and your penmanship gets really neat and you want to say good things when you fill these pages. So I started filling that journal with thoughts and ideas, but that wasn't, that wasn't until six months after I was a monk. So I just had to kind of let go of all of that ambition and that um, dark, powerful, insecure, uh, creative, writerly stuff and just clean myself out on the cushion. And then I could start writing again, but always I was, this was either the case or I was fooling myself, but it was always the, such that writing was a tier below my practice, which was the most important thing. Uh, it was a bit like Zen was my wife and writing was the affair. It felt like that sometimes, <laughs> you know. And how old were you at that time? Perhaps you could give us a, a timeline in terms of age when you arrived in LA, when you became a monk, et cetera. I arrived in LA, I was probably 22, and I became a monk when I was 31. I moved to the Zen Center when I was 30, 31. So um, I got ordained tokodoshiki, which is when you get your ropes and shave your head, tonsure and all that. That was probably, I think that was 2000 and, 2006. Maybe I was 33. I think I was 33 then. Hmm. And yeah, and and I... So I was fully a monk and I had that identity and I had that role and honestly putting all my direct conscious daylight energy and time into that sort of freed me up at night and in my subconscious to kind of work on writing stuff. 
So it was an interesting dynamic. And I, yeah, it was an interesting dynamic. It was, um, it was fruitful. What were you writing at that time? And at what point did Zen Confidential begin to take shape? <laughs> I, you know, I was mostly just kind of um, getting getting stuff down in my journal. So writing about Zen, mostly I was writing about Zen. I wasn't working on any fiction or screenwriting or anything like that. I mean, I had some ideas, but nothing ever really went anywhere. Mostly I was processing what was happening on the cushion and in the monastery in my journals. And then those journal entries eventually became the essays for Zen Confidential. Well, I'd like to ask you a bit more actually about your your writing style that, that uh, we see in Zen Confidential and Single White Monk. But first, I'd like to ask you a bit about Zen and art. Zen and art. We could perhaps take a side uh, journey on this. Zen and art are closely associated, I think, in popular consciousness. One thinks of ink, monochrome, painting, calligraphy, etc. Maybe even tea ceremony, this sort of thing. One associates that with Zen, at least in the popular, popular mind. Um, or broader themes in Japanese art. Wabi-sabi, for example, sort of Buddhist-influenced yeah, yeah. aesthetic. Um, of Wabi Sabi. What can you say about the place of, of, of art in the Zen tradition? And uh, did it have a place in your own training? Um, you know, th there are people you can talk to who are going to know more about Zen and art than I do. So I want to pref like, like preface this with that. Um, there's a yeah there's a long history specifically in japanese culture of this confluence between between zen practice and art i mean there's the art of archery there's um as you said like tea ceremonies and 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 wabi sabi um teacups there's haiku um, there's Ikibani, the flower arrangement. I mean, I wonder about this. I know there's a more uh, academic answer. My sense, my sense, first of all, that has a lot to do with, with Japan and Japanese culture and the way that J Japan was cut off from the rest of the world, at least the Western world, for a long period of time. And they kind of had this internal um, culture that was feeding on itself in a certain way. Uh, without a ton of outside influence. And then you had this interesting microclimate happening. Um, there's also the fact that, you know, Zen is like the direct path, right? It's about manifesting directly. It's not about a bunch of teachings or a bunch of esoteric practices or a bunch of principles you have to master. It's really about manifesting the practice. So, so you, you got to do it. And I think that it, um, maybe uh, in, in Japanese culture where you had these, these uh, people practicing Zen, it was like they brought it out into the world instead of, instead of um, you know, bringing it into the universities and learning more and more about Indian Buddhism and coming up with more and more esoteric philosophies, which, which happened in Japan. I mean, there's a whole Kyoto school of, of Zen uh, that my teacher was actually a part of. But for the most part, it's, it's a practice that you do. And so, you know, when I see like a great Zen master like Harada, Shoto Harada Roshi is a Zen master in the Rinzai Zen lineage. You know, I've seen him doing... Um, like Enso's circles, you know? 
And it's really, it's a beautiful process just watching this black brush on this white scroll of paper and he's, and he does the circle and however he does it, he does it in that moment. It's done. It's a perfect work of art. It's a, it's a, it's a Sistine chapel, whether, whether you like it or he likes it or not. So, um, Sasaki Roshi didn't emphasize art or, or writing at all. I mean, not at all. He, he had his principle, which he called Tathagata Zen and his practice, which was the Rinzai Zen practice that we all did. But there was never any, um, and, and there were, there was never any like any kind of art really. I mean, there's never any poetry or, or Ikebani or, um, uh, I mean, we did tea ceremonies, but it was always kind of practice. Uh, Roshi would give a poem during certain ceremonies. I forget which one it was. He'd spontaneously come up with it, but it was part of the ceremony. So his character was not artistic. I think I mentioned Shon Harada Roshi. His character, and, and I, don't, I haven't done Sanzen with him, koan practice or anything, but from what I understand, his character is more artistic. So he'll do those uh, calligraphies and make that a part of his practice and a part of of the the scene where he teaches but Sasaki Roshi really was did not have that quality at all so it's something I kind of did on my own hmm. you mentioned something interesting about uh your Zen practice wasn't something you could succeed or fail at and that was a, a sort of um I suppose antidote to the Hollywood vibe the hyper success uh, must make it kind of um, emphasis there could you say a little bit more about that Surely, if I play devil's advocate now, surely the purpose of Zen is to get enlightened. Uh, isn't that success? And uh, to fail would be not to that, or to be uh, present in the moment, or something like that. Maybe I'm being a little too, uh, maybe I'm being a little too uh, setting you up here for an easy answer. But, but I'm really interested in that. Not the easy answer, uh, the actual answer. What motivates a practice when it's uncoupled from those driving forces of towards and away from? And then also what motivates artistic creation when it's uncoupled from those same forces of towards and away from? Why not just in a certain sense, sit there doing nothing? Yeah, I mean, they're good questions. You know, I got, I, you don't have, you, I, I actually think it was Brad Warner that put it this way, which I think is good. You don't have a goal in practice, but you have an aim. And I think that's probably a useful way to look at art or creative pursuits as well. Goals, I mean, you can have a goal, you can have a deadline where you gotta get something done, fine. But for the actual work itself, it's probably better to have an aim. And the same thing with practice. If, if you're too loose and you're not driven and you're not focused, like in your practice, you're gonna run into trouble because, I mean, I see this happen again and again and again. You get, you get practitioners who become monks and then they become priests and they get comfortable in not having to succeed or fail, right? There are no stakes. It's very tricky. Um, you wanna stay engaged with life. You wanna keep growing. Mostly what keeps people, pushing people forward in the practice is like this combination, I think, of, 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 of amazing insights like really deep insights and experiences, which sometimes they're Kensho's or Satori experience. Sometimes they're just openings, right? But you get these insights and you have these experiences um, on the one hand, and you have this suffering 
on the other hand. And these two things are kind of pushing you. But you can kind of get to a point where you make peace with the suffering and you can live off all your old insights and openings and you're not really pushed anymore and I, I, that, so that's um that's always a problem that's like the, the the spiritual career problem monks become comfortable priests become comfortable um yeah so you don't have a goal but but you have an aim and it's something's got to keep pushing you in in your practice usually what winds up happening is it's your students that push you after you get students they push you and that's like having, it's like being a parent and wanting your, your kids to, you know, be healthy, successful and happy, you know, so your goal, or your aim becomes taking care of your students as a teacher, spiritual teacher. And what was your question about um, uh, uh, writing? Well, I think you answered it. It's the same, the same sort of, uh, it's the same thing. Uh, you're, you're talking there about how to navigate this goal aim yeah thing with practice and um perhaps you were going to then say something about writing in that respect yeah well writing is interesting it's a, kind of the same thing like you can't it's you know it's like everything in buddhism is the middle way and and um if you have no motivation in or, or i mean i used to be very free in my writing and i would just write and write and write and write and i had i didn't really have an aim and most of what i wrote was tangential and uninteresting and kind of sloppy and it couldn't hold your attention. Then I would realize that was wrong. So I would make a really clear outline and I would try and write bullet point by bullet point. And that was kind of too stiff and forced. So it's like somewhere, somewhere in between creatively is where you want to be some, somewhere in that like sweet spot of, mm. of, of not trying and just being free and yourself and um, realizing that in this moment, you will never, <laughs> like you'll never have this moment again. So you gotta focus your efforts and your energies and bring your best self to the page. It's like somewhere in between those two things, that kind of tension creates great art and maybe also a great Zen practice. In terms of practice, one of the, uh, I think intimidating aspects of Zen is this idea of the session, right? The session, uh, yes. this uh, retreat, lots of sitting or uh, lots of activity, lots of demand. And you've talked actually about your group's ethos being sort of a spiritual boot camp. You were kind of the uh, Zen Marines in a way, sort of Zen Rangers, right. I guess, you know? So it was pretty, it was very um, uh, intense and demanding. Um, so that seemed, it seems like it's pretty difficult to hide in such a situation, but you're uh, saying that it's actually possible. I don't know. You're saying that it's possible to even become acclimatized to that sort of an environment such that you can become complacent, even in the midst of, of that sort of thing. Is it possible to be complacent in a session? Can you get that good at sitting that you just can cruise through? Um, can you well, maybe say a little more about that? Um, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a good question. Okay. So yeah. It's good. It's worth unpacking that. Um, so first of all, like we had a Roshi and he's a Zen master. And even within the context of Rinzai Zen, which, which can be pretty extreme and pretty um, unpredictable and spontaneous and surprising, um, even within that context, Suzaki Roshi, my teacher, was really kind of a, an outlier. I mean, and he liked to push you. So it was really, 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 really hard 
to not change around the guy. I mean, he was always mixing things up and pitting monks against each other and causing trouble and pushing your buttons and trying to figure out where you were stuck and what you were holding on to and what you were proud of and what you were ashamed of. And I mean, this is in the um, Rinzai Roku, the uh, Rinzai, um, I forgot the name of that section, but it's a really famous, really important section in Rinzai Zen. And uh, Lin Chi Rinzai, the, the um, guy whose sayings this book is based on, he talks about what the teacher does. And sometimes like, you know, the teacher heaps a bunch of responsibilities on you and you have to carry them. Another time the teacher comes and takes all your responsibilities away. You have to deal with that. Like there are a number of different ways that a teacher can deal with you. And, and Suzaki Roshi used every way on the planet, you know, from flattering you to insulting you to, to giving you the drop of water on your tongue when you're most parched to cutting your tongue out of your mouth. I mean, it was, it was everything. So you couldn't really rest on your laurels around him. That was my experience. Um, but even that, I mean, even that being the case, like, he wasn't going to kill you, you know, like, and if you were a monk, you could, you know, in a sense, you could almost say the practice is so hard. If I just survive, that's a success. And that can inculcate a kind of passive attitude. So you had a lot of people who would do 20, 30 years of koan with Roshi, koan practice, and they never passed a koan. I mean, my friend was telling me about it the other day that Roshi, that Roshi told him that he had given another student a koan 25 years ago, and the student was still working on that same koan. You know, the kind of passivity in that, there's a kind of resting on your laurels in that. You, it's so hard, you just give up. You can never, you can never do the practice adequately. So, you know, there, you don't really have to sort of call yourself out onto the carpet. There are no stakes, really. You're going to fail, you can't succeed, that's that. You know, you can kind of stay the same. And, and because the practice is so hard, sometimes, even without a teacher that's really pushing you, you know, the, the practice is hard because it's, it's helping, it's getting rid of distractions and helping you to, to really focus. Like it's really being compassionate and generous towards, towards you and cognizant of, of our capacity for distraction. Anything will distract us. So it, a session retreat, you get put in a room and you can't really move and you have to follow the form. And when you do that, you learn the practice, right? But sometimes, like, like I said before, it can be so easy to just like, or it can be so hard to just get through the practice that that in and of itself becomes the goal. And you maybe don't really look at yourself. You maybe don't um, practice so much as just survive the practice, if that makes any sense. Mm. It sounds like a massage, too too rough, too too hard, and uh, you you just tense up and try to survive. <laughs> uh, interesting, interesting. <clears throat> that, yeah, that's not a bad analogy. There's there's an aspect of that. Yeah, I mean, usually I think what happens is you you get broken somewhere. Like if you tense up and try and survive, something will break you sooner or later. Um, but you know, it, it, I mean, it's something will break you sooner or later. Usually. But you know, there's some stubborn people in Zen practice, and and uh, 
And, you know, sometimes I wonder, like, is this, is this practice getting through or are they just getting harder and harder, more and more stubborn the longer they do it? Hmm. Maybe I'm one of them. Huh. What, what broke you? What, what were some of the things that broke you open um, or that you couldn't uh, twist around or just endure through, etc., that, that cracked you open in that sense? Can, does anything come to mind that matches that description? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, when I first started, I had like this physical problem. I mean, yeah, it was like, <laughs> it was like a prostate problem, right? I think. So it was like, I, was, I had to pee. It was like benign hypostatic prostate at a very young age. And like, I had to pee bad during these retreats. And like, it was not a joke, like painful. And that for, so that was like my first summer of practice. And it kind of became an issue at one point. Like I would, was always trying to figure out a way to pee, where to pee, how to pee, right? And I think it was a combination of like the diet and the really intense schedule and all that sitting, pressing up against, you know, my bottom and um, stress and all these things combined to make this a really difficult problem. And I remember hitting a point where I was like, I have to make a decision. There were two zendos. There was like the big zendo where everybody practiced. And then there was the small zendo where like the destroyed people practiced or the injured people. Um, and you kind of didn't want to go to the second zendo uh, because it was hard to come back from the second zendo to the big zendo. And I remember thinking like, I. I don't want to go to the second Zendo. Um, so I just have, I have to, I'll, I guess I'll just, I'll let it break me. If, if I piss myself, I'll piss myself. If I, if I, my body falls apart, it falls apart, but I'm not going to leave the main Zendo. I'm not going to do it. And it was like this, um, moment of willpower will not quite will it was resolution and then something shifted and it was like my body got on board weirdly it was like okay he's gonna stay in this endo now well okay we got to adjust he seems pretty serious about it he's he's not giving in so we have to adjust and then i didn't the problem kind of more or less went away it was it was pretty interesting so I, it was like I got broken in that moment, but put together again pretty quickly. Mm. But mostly the stuff that really broke me was, was dealing with peers, like <laughs> dealing with difficult peers in environments where you just, you had to work with them and you couldn't see eye to eye. And like they were really aggressive sometimes and really crazy and you just had to you just had to get through it those were really the things that broke me did those uh sorts of relationships lead to any epiphanies or insights or was it more a gradual i suppose uh, i don't know if purification is the right word or a gradual um working on your being I think, I think it was gradual. And, you know, a lot of people like, like when you think about a monastery, you think, even when I think, when I see pictures of like Tibetan monks or something, I think about the main A, a, a story 
of their journey, which is seeking enlightenment, like you said, or becoming Buddhas or manifesting your Buddha nature, whatever you want to call it. But there's like this B story that's going on. And for me, that B story was being put in these situations with people that I could not escape and I could not get out of. And just like there, it was like, they're working my soil year after year. I mean, I, I'm thinking about this now because I'm actually writing an essay about this for, for Patreon. I'm working, writing an essay about a really difficult monk that I had worked with. And then just when I got rid of him or got, he left the Zen center, then another guy came along. And then after him, a, a nun came along. And it was like my three nemeses. And when you're at a monastery with people like this, you know, it's not a marriage you know, where you love someone and you can get divorced if you want to. And it's not a work situation where it's clearly business and not personal. It's all the above and more. These are like, these are like family. They're your Dharma family and you have to live with them. And oftentimes they're a little bit eccentric because they're doing this practice with you in the first place. Um, and I, 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 in answer to your question specifically, I think that it's, it happens over time. And, and what happens is something like something shifts, something changed in me um, working with, with really difficult people in, in really difficult situations over a long period of time. Like, like you really have to learn to manifest the core of the practice in these situations because nothing else helps, <laughs> you know, sometimes there are really important questions within the context of the monastery that you're uh, trying to answer together with these people and you're butting heads about it and it gets worse and worse and there's just no right or wrong. There's no, um, there's no clear resolution and, and, and so then you get into the politics of it and you try and sort of beat your enemy, but then that doesn't work, right? Because you just get another enemy that you have to, that you have to destroy, right? Or, or you come to find that actually this other person was right and you were wrong, you know? So, so ultimately, it's almost like you learn, you have to learn to kind of manifest this almost unconditional love like you have in a family, like, like you, you, you know, no matter you got to find the common ground no matter what and 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 not like let this person crawl into your head right <laughs> and not shrink away from conflict but also not try and destroy people like it's just after a while i mean i, I probably told you this in the last podcast it's like they say that the monks are like um a bunch of rocks in a bag and the practice like shakes the bag and everybody knocks each other's sharp edges off. And eventually you get kind of smooth, um, smooth monks. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Very interesting. You know, I'm thinking now about your style of writing and your, your approach that you've taken in your, in your two books that I mentioned before. And, um, one of the things it's often said one learns in meditation practice or one can learn in meditation practice, I've, I've uh, heard it said, is how much of one's um, activity uh, is identity performance or identity to oneself, actually, a sort of a reassurance or assertion of one's identity for one's own uh, sense of identity. 
a sort of sonar almost. With meditation practice, one of the things that one can learn is to have a more sort of fluid identity, to not have to keep reinforcing it and have to keep stating it to oneself or solidifying it or acting it out. And that a lot of things can be dropped, actually, if one's happy just to not uh, to be somebody else for uh, five seconds who doesn't need to do that, etc. I don't know if I've expressed that very well, um, but anyway. Uh, also art. When bad, one of the things that one can see in bad art is the artist's attempt to perform himself <laughs> or herself. <clears throat> That's sort of singer who, rather than empty of ego uh, and full of, say, ca charismatic power on a stage, is excruciatingly self-aware. It's uh, almost it's almost cringeworthy to watch a performance which is so full of the performer. Um, yeah. in a li it limits, in a certain sense, the art. I'm thinking of that because your art, your writing is so personal and very open and very self-deprecating. You use yourself very often. You're the butt of the joke. You're you're the uh, leading edge of, you know, it doesn't get any worse than what you say in this chapter. Uh, nobody can idolize you after that chapter. I mean, it's really that kind of uh, comical, uh, disclosed writing in a way. So yeah, I'm interested how you came to that. It might be seen to be maybe a little vulnerable. Or what could you talk a bit about that process? How how you develop that style, that voice? I, yeah, it's a good question. I don't know. I mean, I, I remember how did I develop that voice? I think there's something. First of all, it's like I want to be honest, and if when I keep kind of interrogating a personal experience I've had that I want to write about. There's you, usually I start the essay off with, with a, one idea. And by the end of it, I've, I've kind of realized the antithesis of that idea almost, um, or a change has, has come upon me as the writer. And I was writing um, personal essays. And so the protagonist of these essays was me. And so, as I was writing this protagonist and changing my idea about what the essay was about, as I was writing it, it usually wound up being that, <laughs> I don't know how to put it, but in the end, I was just, I didn't know anything. I was the idiot who, um, who learned something through the process of writing it and then the process of going through the experience. And that was the only honest way I could write. Everything else felt kind of, um, yeah, I felt removed, you know, like there was no skin in the game. Part also, I was writing about the in inner workings of a monastery where it's ethically dubious to shine a light on that, a public light on that. People are going to a monastery to, it's, they're not expecting to be written about. So I kind of had to focus all the pieces on myself, right? And to do that successfully, you can't, you gotta, I mean, at least for me, it was like, this. it's gotta be somewhat comical, like uh, human, showing the, my foibles as I go through this practice and seeing where my, like coming up against the edge of what I know, and and my what I think is true winds up not being true. Where I think I, I've got good character, actually that's it's hiding a bunch of foibles. 
um, you know, these things are kind of interesting for me. And, and writing that's just on the edge of good taste is always interesting to me. Writing that's kind of on the edge of chaos is interesting to me. Writing that you're not sure if it works or if it doesn't work or if it's too much or, or just enough. I, that, that tends to be writing that interests me. And that's writing that I, I'm interested in pursuing and completing and finishing. And, and that's the stuff that I, goes in the books, you know. There's a lot of stuff that I just don't finish because it doesn't have enough energy, kind of runs itself out. But the stuff that has energy and that I finish, it's usually stuff where, 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 where the, I've learned something writing it and I've learned something new about the experience I was writing about. Mm. Yeah, this, this thesis antithesis um, that you're talking about, I, I think yes, that's quite right. That does seem to be a, a, a structure that that animates much of your writing, I think. And um, if that's the case, thesis antithesis sometimes followed by synthesis, right? Sometimes in your writing, the road to the insight is so humiliating or um, so, uh, let's say, um, devastating is another way of maybe putting it and i i'm thinking of several stories from the two the two books but i'm sure you're also you know there's lots of them like that that whilst whilst the protagonist learns something at the end gains something at the end he's also lost a lot in the along the way so perhaps it's about net zero <laughs> you know in terms of yeah. moral superiority maybe you know is well i learned this lesson and now i'm better than i was before uh, it doesn't always work out like that in your yeah. writing and so yeah. there's a sort of balancing there it's kind of interesting to me um can you talk a bit about that what's the synthesis what's the if there's a thesis antithesis what's the what's 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 coming out of that for you you know, I tend to think um, just going through the experience is um, enough. Like, I think it is kind of net zero. Uh, you know, this is what we do, right? Like, what what's the purpose of a plant, you know? Uh, I mean, I, I say this because I've got some plants that I'm, I'm worried about right now because they're <laughs> kind of dying, right? Um, and what's the purpose of these plants? You know, what's the purpose of a human life? I mean, maybe that's maybe that's something that I'm trying to do in my writing. Like, you go to a monastery and you really, like you said, there's arguably this goal for enlightenment or this aim of realizing your true face, right? But, and you go for it. In every one of these essays, there's some part of me that's going for an ideal, but, but I don't reach it. Um, you, never, you never reach it. So, so then what's the point? Well, the, I guess the point re really is to be human and to, and, to, and to, I don't know if I want to say push yourself, but to experience, really to experience. And you exhaust energies and you grow old and you um, have experiences and some of them are terrible and some of them are good. But in the end, like you live this human life, you, all this life came out of you into the world, you know, that wouldn't have been there otherwise. And I don't think there, there is a point to it. Um, and that's not a bad thing. It's just like, there's not a point to a plant. It, it's its own point, you know, the experience is its own point. It's like they say zazen is enlightenment. You don't practice to get enlightened, you know. So I think there's there's an element of that in in my writing that I'm not conscious of ever, you know, when I'm writing it. And whenever I do try and 
extract some kind of message or lesson from the bad experience so that it's more in the net positive range. It's, it's always phony somehow. It never works. You've expressed this pointlessness. You've raised the question of pointlessness in your writing before. We, talk, we talked last time about a passage where you said, well, it's so depressing to see um, my fellow monks uh, try so hard and so on and so forth and go through all the rigors and you know get enlightened or whatever it is that they're doing and then they end up being more or less the same uh, kind of jerks that they were when they went in something along those lines and then you said and then the most chilling part is when you realize i'm not quoting you directly unfortunately and then the, the most chilling part is when you realize that you're also one of those monks <laughs> yeah you know? I, I feel There's like that the sort why... of like existentialist thing there i feel like the why is is like because it's fun <laughs> Um, I don't think we know the real why. I, I'm not a materialist. I'm not a, like a biological evolutionist, evolutionary. And, um, you know, it's just as I find those scientific, um, answers so, so empty. Just, I want to crumble them up and throw them in the dustbin. Like, we persist because we have a desire to carry our genes forward. Those kinds of, that's not food for living. But, you know, I think, I don't know, there's, there, is, there is a reason. We don't know what it is. Uh, it's probably not logical. Um, I don't know if we can craft our lives here such that we have a successful rebirth or, or a, a slot in a heavenly afterlife. I don't know any of that, but... Like I sometimes I think to myself, like, okay, if like I project forward to when I'm like 80 years old and I'm looking at this time and I'm like, would I be, would it feel good? Would it feel not good? And I think, well, it, I'm really trying to like, for example, finish a novel and whether I publish it or not, I, I don't know that that would be a metric for, for success or fulfillment when I'm 80 looking back. I, I, I think what would be a, a metric was, was I throwing myself into something completely, you know, taking risks at my edge, um, not corrupt, uh, not cutting corners in life. Like that's sort of the why for me, not like just go carrying forward to reproduce and, and not die, that sort of thing. Like it's more spiritual. There's, there's, there's a spiritual reason. There's a spiritual why. Um, you know, if we don't do these things, we, we get depressed. The world becomes a worse place. There's possibility for corruption and evil to take hold. You know, if people, if you're not doing what you're doing with this podcast, you know, and if your mom isn't doing what she's doing, if all these people aren't doing what they're doing, you know, I think that the people with bad intentions, like the Vladimir Putins, like they get control of the area, it becomes dark. The dark side of the force takes over, you know. I, I mean, I'm not being very clear, and this is rather esoteric and a little bit uh, woo-woo, but... Um, I think blindly, we just keep doing our thing as best we can. Our creative things, our, 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 our aims, like we talked about earlier, and not give up. And the world, 
our worlds are just a little bit better and the world is just a little bit better. We don't know how, we don't know why, maybe that's faith, but um, I think it is. That makes sense. Hmm, very interesting. It seems to be an awfully thin line between the liberating aspect of, of, of what you've said and the, I suppose, paralyzing or euthanizing aspect of it. What do I mean? I mean that from what you said, one could say, wow, yeah. Who knows why? Who knows what it's all for? Success or failure? Let's just plunge into life, right? This sort of thing. Or one could say, wow, thesis, antithesis, everything has its neutralizing opposite that I can bring up. Pointless. I'm becalmed spiritually and artistically. Have you noticed that in either Zen or in art in yourself or, or those around you, a, a kind of becalmed in a bad way, I suppose, or maybe not a bad like way. A, like a quietistic approach? No, I mean in a kind of um, what's the point approach. Uh, everything loses its inspiration or everything loses its justification to be done. You know, I, I don't find that. So um, and maybe this is my ideology or something, but that tends to me like when I'm in that zone, it's because I haven't, like something is stuck in me that I, and I, or something is dead that I can't let go of. Um, and yeah, something is sort of dead and I'm too stuck or too scared or too lazy or too comfortable but, you know, you can bet if like the roof caved in or an earthquake came or gunmen barged through the door, I would suddenly have a motivation really quickly, you know. Um, so, you know, there's always this process. Um, we haven't really gone into this, but it was key to my, my Zen practice and my teacher's teachings. You, you know, you, 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 you engage with the world completely and your ego dies into that activity of engagement and then some something new is born in the world around you and within you and it, as long as you keep doing that i i don't think you run into the issue of why go on why go on maybe you do and sometimes we run into that but you know i think i feel like when that happens to me it's 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 somehow i've gotten lazy comfortable or you know I, i've hit a I've hit a point where something has to die and something new has to be born. And it, you know, it usually means coming out of my comfort zone, but you know, I'm a Sagittarius. We're like, uh, we're optimists. So <laughs> we, we tend to keep pushing forward no matter what. <laughs> yeah, that's very interesting indeed. One of the uh, areas I was interested to ask you about, you're talking about the, monastery that you were at and there's a culture there uh, not particularly artistic or creative for perhaps following the disposition or temperament of of the leader of that group sasaki roshi but that was not necessarily the case for all of the monks in fact a leonard cohen was a resident i believe at the uh, at the uh, monastery so i'm curious about that was your artistic process at all influenced by contact with Leonard Cohen, who is, I think, held to be um, held very high esteem as an artist, 
a great artist in, in his in his uh, field. Were you influenced by him at all? Uh, did you have any interactions about art? Uh, did that proximity affect you in any way? Yeah, I mean, mostly I think we, you know, um, in different ways, he, you know, anybody who's doing anything creative um, at the monastery or as a Zen practitioner uh, in, in, in our culture, in our, in our Sangha, uh, you know, the practice gave you some relief from your own ambition and from your own suffering and some space and that released creative energy um, for sure. It made it not so serious if you succeeded or failed, kind of like we talked about earlier. And, you know, Leonard, I wasn't actually with him at the monastery. That was before my time. But um, when I moved to the temple in Los Angeles, he was in L.A. and he was coming back around then to see my teacher because they were friends. So we spent a lot of time together um, during a certain period for like a couple of years. He, he was coming around a lot. Um, you know, and, and I picked up little things here and there. It was kind of, just kind of it, was, it was interesting to me to to be around <clears throat> like an artist who had who had been through it all, you know, who had been through like his <clears throat> idealistic, um, romantic, tragic, young troubadour phase. Then he went in. <clears throat> excuse me, sorry. So yes, yeah, so he went through these phases. That, you know, the romantic young troubadour phase, then it was like this, like, kind of cynical, ironic, knowing, almost like a, a, apocalyptic, middle-aged phase. And then he hit this really interesting phase, like late in his career, and that was when I knew him, where he was writing these like love songs to God. I mean, if you listen to those final albums of his, they're love songs, but they're clearly psalms. They're clearly spiritual poems. They're interactions with the ineffable. You know, they're playful and they're, they're coy and they're wise and they're both lonely and very rich with the company of the divine at the same time. I mean, really beautiful uh, works of art. And I like, for me, that's like the, it's such a good example to see that because usually, you know, artists don't have like contemporary artists. I mean, how many of them have a real spiritual side? I mean, mostly it's the art that is their, that is their um, religion, you know? So you, you have young, you know, the 28 club, like the Jimi Hendrixes and the Jim Morrison's, the Kirk Cobains, they die young they burn out in a, in a blaze of fire or they go into their middle age and they start doing, you know, concerts where they're playing all their old hits or they're just repeating themselves, you know, but how many wise old sages do we have in, in, for artists? And I think that's what Leonard was. I think his best stuff was his last stuff. It was the culmination of all his years of living and practicing Zen and studying the Bible and studying with these rabbis. And so, so, you know, and I knew him during that time and, um, he was really a guy who didn't seem to me to be hung up on, on ego, on how, what his legacy would be on how people thought of him. Uh, he was really, it was really, yeah, it was really a great gift to be around that, to, to see 
because most of our examples of artists are people that are just screwed up, you know, and you, you know, just, just they're just a mess. And and suffering was a huge part of 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 uh, like what he wrote about, obviously. But it but it he wasn't a guy who who when I knew him who was like you know caught up in his own suffering and that was cool to see and now i'm very grateful to have been able to see that mm, very interesting i'm wondering if we took, could talk about humor yeah well your books are very funny uh we've talked we've talked about some of the deeper uh structures and themes uh and their philosophical implications but something i think we can't not talk about is humor how do you calibrate that how do you think about humor when you're writing it's just you with your uh, computer, I guess. Uh, how do you, how do you calibrate that, and um, how do you relate to humor as a writer? Yeah, that's such a great. It's such a great question. Like, like I don't know. I don't know. Humor is like is like this. It's like the hail mary pass because like you just know you're losing people. You know, I mean, humor is the quickest way to just grab people before they run. You know. And I think it was George Carlin who said that a joke is like the ultimate Zen um, tool because like it completely opens people up and then you can slide in whatever you want when they're that open, whatever message or meaning you want to put in there. Um, yeah, I mean, I haven't been too funny today, but I, like I try and be funny in my, uh, I don't try to be funny in my work, but, but it's when I get a good rhythm going, then there's jokes in there. Um, this is nothing interesting going on if it's not at least a little bit funny for me and, and life is ironic and, and most humor is in, in, in one way, one way or another ironic, like you mean this, but this is what comes out, you know, humor at its heart is as iron as ironic. Um, so I'm always trying to have funny stuff in there while approaching serious topics. Can you think of, uh, any of your writing and particularly in those books or elsewhere, perhaps where you've taken risks? that you were unsure about um, or perhaps extended yourself in, in humor or extended yourself in, in personal disclosure in a way that um, was a little edge of the seat for you? Yeah, well, I mean, when, <laughs> like what immediately comes to mind, well, I don't know. I mean, I don't know, you know, if you can turn it into art, it's, it's, it's can't be used against you, you know? I mean, I wrote in the book about, um, uh, what, what did I, I wrote about a lot of things, but <laughs> one of which was just carrying the Keisaku, which is the Zen um, stick that you use to hit people. And I had a cold, and so I wound up just shitting myself completely. And when you're in that moment, I mean, it doesn't get much worse. <laughs> like shitting yourself in front of a group of people. I mean, that is the worst <laughs> experience on the planet. But if you can turn around and you can write about it, I mean, it's funny. It's also funny. I mean, who has not shit themselves in a, in a crowded room? It's funny, you know. Um, but, you know, other things I wrote about, like I wrote about some really kind of dark stuff that went on during the whole scandal, the sex scandal with my teacher and trying to process that. And like... Um, my own sex life during that experience. Um, I wrote about that a little bit in my book and that's kind of edge, edge of the seat. And I, 
I think I just went there because if I can find the words to talk about how I still have a sexual desire during a massive sex scandal that my teacher was a part of and that I was trying to deal with. So writing about jerking off during, during that time, you know, if I can, if I can find the words for it that are interesting and alive for me, somehow slide that, those words into other people's life through the form of an essay and maybe stuff that they're going through, you know, it's, it's, it's a way to connect with people. You know, it's a way to connect the worst of my own experience to the best of my uh, talents and abilities. Um, somehow it kind of transforms it as best, you know, that's sort of why I do it, I think. Hmm. How aware are you of your audience when you're writing? Your books have been very successful and are widely enjoyed and acclaimed. I wonder if you've received criticism also um, or pushback at all. Uh, I'd be interested to know that. And I'm curious, uh, as a parallel question, how, how much, you know, do you have your audience in mind to any extent when you're writing? I mean, I, well, there is, yeah, there is some criticism, like, for sure, like, um, which, which I take seriously. Um, I'm thinking of a particular review. Like, you, you know, you can, you can, like, there's a, there's like a line and I'm sure I cross it at some points where writing about these things in this personal of a way is really just trying to draw attention to myself. Um, when maybe a quieter approach about simpler topics would be more interesting. So I'm aware of that kind of criticism. Um, as far as, and I, and I take it seriously, um, what do you mean by that? You as far as like, well, it's like, I guess I, I guess if it's a really serious topic that I'm writing about, I try and I try and I try and be, I try and, and go deep instead of just being loud. Um, and I try and find kind of the truest thing to write about instead of the most um, obvious or maybe the, uh, uh, most, like I said, loud or explosive, you know. So, I mean, I haven't written about shitting in a while. So that's, or, or masturbating or sex scandals or some of these things that are, you know, uh, intense, loud topics. I've tried to try to maybe find truer, quieter topics, you know. Um, that's what I mean by taking it seriously. Um, but I'm not so aware of any kind of audience, to be honest. I mean, I really appreciate, I'm just shocked when anybody reads anything I've written and has a positive response to it. And if I actually thought about an, any kind of reader or, I mean, reader in the abstract, yes. And reader in the specific, yes. Like maybe like one or two people reading it um, that I know or that have contacted me over the years and appreciated what I've written. But reader it, I, yeah, if I think about that, then um, it just quickly becomes like like we were talking, like you were explaining earlier, a person who's really the singer who's performing himself, you know, self-consciously. That's what happens if I think about the reader. Hmm. Very interesting. 
we could go on and on. I think it's this is a, such an interesting topic, and it's so interesting to hear you describe some of the thinking and reflections that go on behind the scenes there. But I'm curious also, you know, you, you're you talking about being on the edge and you appreciate writing that is on the border between good taste and bad taste. And there's something about that that's energizing for you. And of course, those sorts of lines, there's a sense in which sometimes those lines can be uh, universal, um, but there are some some lines like that that seem to transcend culture and time. There are others where that line, for whatever reason, can move a lot with cultural changes, you know, and something that was funny or edgy or wry 30 years ago or something or 40 years ago, if it's too much of its time, it, it, it can lose its, it, it can lose its, um, it can, it can really be on <laughs> very far to the other side of that line, you know, right, right, we absolutely. see that in all, yeah, we see that in all kinds of things. I think especially true in comedy and yeah. those sorts of more edgy disciplines where th there is that tension. So I'm, I'm wondering if you, do you ever reflect on that? Do you ever, when you see around you, um, the re-examination of past works and past figures in the light of today's cultural landscape, which, which occurs, do you ever consider your previous works? Now, what, 20, 10 years, uh, 16, 2016, wasn't it? Uh, Single White Monk came out 2016 or 2018? 17, I think maybe. Oh, well, in the, yeah, 2017. And, that's some time ago. The world has changed a lot in the last 10 years, the last 15 years. Um, do you ever, does this something that um, you think about much? Yeah, I think a lot about how my definition of riding that edge is actually um, informed by my own experience, especially in the ways that people are, uh, how can I put this? Um, I think about it a lot. I think, I mean, the stuff that I thought was funny in college, I look back on it now and I just cringe. Like I went home recently and I went into my attic at my dad's house and I found this old writing. I might've talked about this in one of my videos um, and I was reading it and it was so cruel. It was, I was making fun of fat people. Um, and, and I remembered that guy who was insecure about his own body. And from an outsider's perspective, it was like, you know, straight white man, re decently abled with a fine body, you know? Um, so the whole reevaluation of like what's appropriate for, for, whom to talk about where and when like it's something that's definitely on my mind um i never want to be cruel i think that's one of the reasons that i that i try and take myself out at the kneecaps in every piece is because like if you're not directing the humor at yourself there's the possibility that you can be cruel and that that's a really that's a really um tricky line and I never want to be cruel in my writing or, or ignorant. Um, so yeah, it's definitely something I think about a lot. Like how, like, am I, am I making this joke at, at anyone's expense? And I also don't want to over edit and take stuff out that might kind of be funny 
but it's in it's it's in current bad taste so so there's cruelty and then there's i don't want to say this because current bourgeois taste is such that it will be perceived as um gauche or politically incorrect or something like that um so there's always a line for me that i'm looking like I'm looking not to cross, right? Like, um, I don't want to. I don't want to not say something because it's politically incorrect if it's funny. Um, but I also don't want to be cruel or ignorant or just stupid, you know. That makes or get canceled. Sense. Or get canceled. Yeah, <laughs> they can cancel me. I don't care. But it is an issue. Yeah, it is an issue. Absolutely. I think about some of the stuff I've written. At, in the past, I know it's just some phrases I've used or topics I've chosen. It's like clearly cancelable territory, um, but I'm just insignificant culturally. So <laughs> don't rise to the level of being canceled, you know, um, but yeah. Well, Jack, this has been a fascinating uh, conversation. I'm curious, you talked about the evolution of your writing and you talked about you know, reading those things you wrote in college and, and high school and, and you know, you've, 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 your writing and perspective has changed a lot. As we mentioned, it's been some years now um, when the two books that we've been focusing on, or I've been referring to, um, Saying Confidential and Single White Monk were published. So I'm curious uh, where your writing is going. Um, where are you heading with your writing? And perhaps in terms of projects, certainly. Um, also in terms of your uh, creative process or your artistic uh, voice, where do you see that going in the near future? um good question i mean i'm working on a novel right now uh i'm working for a long time um and it's like it's a completely different beast than nonfiction. um so i've learned i've had to learn how to take a like a a massive chunk of material because i've got dozens of drafts of this thing um, and whittle it down to its most essential points. And, 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 and so I'm working on that novel right now and I'm working on more Zen essays. What I'm hoping to do is just kind of keep doing what I've been doing, but have it be more, more um, mature and maybe more playful at the same time. You know, uh, it's, a, it's a great question. I really want to finish this novel and just be done with it. I'm hoping that I can produce a piece of fiction that is not terrible. I never have in my entire life. My parents think my nonfiction is fiction, but <laughs> I tend to think of it as nonfiction. Um, so I'm hoping I can put everything I, I, I sort of have and tried to put in my Zen books. Um, in a more playful way in this novel and then have that work and then just keep on doing Zen essays one mm. after another. And a new medium that you're working in, and they are, I think, could be seen as essays, mini essays in a sense, is your YouTube channel and Patreon account. Um, I'm, oh, yeah. I'm curious, yeah, I'm curious how that how that folds in. I mean, do you, do you prepare those in, in the same way you prepare a written piece? Is it more off the cuff? Uh, how, do you see, how do you see that avenue um, in terms of your general overall artistic process? 
Yeah, that's an interesting. I, I really should not have uh, started that YouTube channel. I mean, it, it's a. I definitely it's a it's the it's the uh, bastard child, um, and my writing is my 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 prized child. Um, but there's something about just getting in front of a camera and just letting it rip. It's really interesting. And the fact that I, I mean, I wind up spending way too much time on those videos, um, but I try and get them done as fast as I can, but they wind up taking a huge amount of time, but just like, just like off the cuff coming up with stuff and then, and then sitting down and like, like, trying to write out a bit of a structure for a, for a video essay and then doing it again and then just finally realizing I don't know what I'm doing and just spewing for 20 minutes and then throwing all this stuff into my iFilm, trying to edit it together in a reasonable amount of time. Like I, every one of those video essays I do or videos that I do is a total failure in my opinion. And that's one thing that I really like about them. Like I'm just throwing it out there and it's so public because it's your face and your words. It's not like writing when you're sitting there at your desk and you can just kind of publish your words. It's your actual face <laughs> and your mouth speaking the words, you know? And I don't think they're great essays, but there's some stuff in them that I, that I, where I feel like I've put something out there that uh, maybe a line or two in each video that I like. Um, but just putting it out there and having it not be perfect and completing it and moving on to the next piece and not worrying about it has been totally liberating experience. It's taught me a lot about writing too. Because you got to complete things as a as an artist, as a writer, you have to complete things. It has to be done. That's how you learn. If it's always got your works in progress, you never grow. Uh, something you have to finish stuff, and then you see, ah, oh, that's that's what I did wrong, or that's what kind of worked, and that's what this video channel is for me. And it's also an opportunity to connect with people about Zen because most of my talks are about Zen, and I kind of miss giving Dharma talks, which I did at the monastery. So that's also been fun. Yeah, it's a big part of it. Well, I'll certainly link your YouTube channel in the show notes below. And uh, people can go and check out these essays and uh, find your Patreon through there as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, Jack, uh, this has been a fascinating conversation. Uh, thank you so much for coming back on for this, this sequel. Shozan, Jack Habner, thank you very much. Thank you. It's been great. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.